everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Dr. Lauren Duffy. I'm a boarded veterinary anesthesiologist. That's quite a mouthful. And today I am joined by Lori. Hello, everybody. My name is Laurie Rasbeck. I'm a certified veterinary technician, and I work in the surgery department running anesthesia. So per multiple requests from many different sources, we have been asked to address hypotension and how we think about it, how we want to treat it, and that kind of a, well, kind of the whole gamut. So we are going to put together a multi-part series on diving into what is hypotension, why do we care, what causes it, and how are we going to fix it. And this is quite an in-depth topic, and I think to really discuss it appropriately, we kind of all have to have a background understanding of the different terms and things that are involved. So this first episode, we're going to target essentially the, the basics of hypotension, how do we measure it, cardiovascular physiology, just a brief review, And then the second part will be a little bit more clinical where we actually talk about my five steps to managing hypotension. And that will lead us to the last segment, which will be a bit of a review of the sympathetic nervous system physiology and those different receptors that we use like alpha ones, beta ones, but then also the different pressors and inotropes like dopamine, norepi, dobutamine, phenylephrine, and when to pick which drug for which patient and kind of understanding exactly how they work. Because if you use them inappropriately, you can actually, I wouldn't say cause damage, but you won't necessarily be helping your patient. And I think understanding how to do that just takes a little bit more understanding. Um, But it's something that we reach for on a regular basis. So it's not necessarily something to be afraid of, but we just want to empower everyone to make those choices uh, wisely. So first, we're just going to touch base on why do we even care about monitoring blood pressure? Um, So blood pressure uh, is your driving force for maintaining adequate oxygen delivery to the tissues, brain, heart, and kidneys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we think we talk a lot about blood pressure because it's what we have access to clinically to try to get some evidence of how well our heart is pumping and how well our tissues are being perfused. But blood pressure itself is not kind of the end goal. And the real end goal is that we are giving all of our tissues, our brain, plenty of oxygen to do their cell things. And so we need the delivery of the oxygen to the tissues, but then also have an oxygen content. Um, And so right now we're talking about the delivery component of oxygen delivery. And some of the effects of hypotension, and we'll talk about what it means to be hypotensive in a few minutes here, but some of the effects that you can see, maybe not initially, some some of of them are more long-term, like renal failure, you can have decreased metabolism of drugs, ventilation, perfusion, mismatch, hypoxemia, so that's um, that is more with the oxygen delivery yeah. uh, and ventilation. Um, and having low blood pressure can kind of, at, this is a conversation, will be a more in-depth conversation later, but having poor perfusion to the lungs can actually affect your ability of the blood to actually pick up oxygen and can 
kind of contribute to the oxygen content component as well, which is kind of interesting. And in that same state where um, you are hypotensive and kind of have low oxygen delivery, um, that can delay your anesthesia recovery times, Mm -hmm. um, kind of it's discouraging for the body to start to wake up. It doesn't have enough of what it needs. You can have some CNS abnormalities and then severe hypotension can cause cardiac and respiratory arrest. Yeah, when things really start to shut down. So a lot of the terms that we talk about with blood pressure actually come from some research done in the 1940s and 1950s, and they looked at the blood pressure that was required to maintain adequate blood perfusion of certain organ systems. And so the main ones being the kidney, the brain, the heart, and the pregnant uterus, because those seem to be um, kind of the biggest demanders in terms of maintaining their metabolic state and maintaining their oxygen, uh, oxygen source, oxygen delivery. And also if you start to have deficits to perfusion to those organs, you start to see failure. So like you said, some CNS abnormalities, if you don't deliver your brain enough oxygen, you're going to start to have neuron death. And that will then lead to, I mean, they might not be able to do Sudoku after a bad (laughs) hypotensive event, but it's not really required of them. Um, But then again, you might see kidney failure or, or acute kidney injury with severe sustained hypotension. Mm-hmm. So these research studies found that in order to maintain their ability to kind of auto-regulate their own perfusion, the mean blood pressure has to be kept within about 60 to 150 millimeters of mercury. So generally speaking, that is where all of our hypotension guidelines come from are these really old studies that are just looking at the blood pressure that's required to maintain perfusion to the kidneys and the brain. And if you're in a facility that doesn't have the ability to measure mean arterial pressure, which is what Lauren was just talking about, and you only have the means to measure, say, with a Doppler, your systolic arterial pressure, that would correlate to a number about 90 to 140. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, probably. I would would agree. We'll talk about Dopplers in a second, but really that Doppler number is probably somewhere between your mean and your systolic. And we just tend to just equate it with our systolic. Even when we're writing it on our anesthesia record, we use that, um, is that upside down triangle or upside down V which is the same symbol we use for systolic blood pressures. The interesting thing about coronary perfusion and the perfusion to the heart, which is arguably maybe the most important is, that the heart is actually not dependent on mean arterial pressure or systolic arterial pressure, but is instead dependent on the diastolic pressure, which, or the blood pressure at the most relaxed phase of the heart. So when the heart goes to beat and actually push blood out, all those muscles contract and they squeeze down and they actually squeeze down on the capillaries that are perfusing the heart. So it actually stops forward flow. It's only when the heart has actually stopped pumping and all that muscle relaxes and blood's actually able to move forward through the coronary arteries. And so while mean blood pressure is very important for the brain and the kidneys, the diastolic pressure, which usually gets forgotten, Mm. is actually the most important for the heart, which I guess some would say is maybe the most important organ that keeps us, you know, alive. 
So with that said, let's just take a little trip down um, and review the blood th flow through the heart. So the body has, or the blood has gone through the heart. It's in the body. It returns from the body via the vena cava. The blood goes through your right atrium into your right ventricles, goes to the lungs via the pulmonary valve, returns from the heart through the left atrium, the left ventricle to the aorta, and then back to the body for circulation. So because the left heart has to pump the blood through the whole body, the left heart actually has to generate a lot higher pressure than the right heart. If you ever looked at a picture or cross-section of a heart, you will notice that the left side is super muscular, super thick, super big, and the right side has a thin wall, a lot less muscle, and it looks like wimpy, wimpy. I'm thinking of those like glad trash bag commercials. Mm. We're like, and really, so the left side being the body size side has a lot of resistance. And the majority of the resistance to forward flow actually comes from these little sphincters that we call arterioles. And these arterioles sit just in front of capillaries. And so if you think of a capillary wall, the capillaries are very fragile thin, one cell layer, really tiny. And if you just blasted them with a bunch of pressure, you are going to have capillary damage, which is like a thing with hypertension. Now, so the arterioles actually create a little bit of a, of a block there. And as the blood squeezes past this little sphincter, in front of it generates pressure and behind it, it's much lower pressure. So you have a gentle flow going through your capillaries. So you have that pressure drop there. That's one function. The other main function is that it helps to divert the blood into the more important parts. So if you think about a sphincter having a very high tone, that's creating a lot of resistance. There is in general will be less blood flow through that very tight sphincter. However, if in another part of the body, an arterial is more open, it provides less resistance. You're going to have better flow, but because there's so many parallel little circulations going on in the body. You have your muscles and even you can even go more specific than that. You have your quadriceps muscle versus your biceps muscle versus your calf versus your, um, your intercostals or your rib muscles. I mean, they all kind of require blood flow at different times, or if you, it depends if you're going upstairs or if you're lying casually on your bed. And so the arterials help to direct the flow and say, you know, I'm just laying here. My quads don't need a huge amount of blood flow right now. So they increase their resistance to that muscle group. So that way blood gets diverted elsewhere. Um, and so the arterioles allow that kind of dynamic, uh, kind of feature as to where all your blood is going. The right side in comparison has a lot less to worry about. It's just kind of going to the lungs. It gets distributed equally to all the different alveoli picks up the picks up the uh, oxygen, dumps off its CO2, and then comes back to the heart to then get shot around to the rest of the body. And so because of that, the lungs pose a lot less resistance to forward flow. So the right side of the heart ends up having a lot thinner walls, a lot less muscular, like muscular layers, and generally operates with lower pressures. So that's the big difference to understand between left circulation and right circulation. Uh, 
while we're just doing a little review of cardiophys, it's kind of an important thing to re- just to keep in mind because when we start talking about things like pulmonary stenosis or other different cardiac abnormalities like mitral valve disease, all of these factors will kind of come into play and it will make a lot more sense down the road. With that little review, um, let's talk about now what systolic, diastolic, and mean arterial pressure actually means and where they come from within the heart cycle. When the left ventricles contract, blood's pushed into the aorta, aorta, creating your systolic arterial pressure. That's the maximum amount of pressure in one cardiac cycle um, when the heart is contracting. Then the left ventricle empties, relaxing, and begins to fill again, and the aortic pressure falls. That's creating your diastolic arterial pressure. So diastole is relaxation. Because the cardiac cycle, so one cardiac cycle refers to the time between one beat to the next beat. And so one third of that full cycle is actually spent contracting and ejecting blood and two-thirds of that time is actually spent opening up relaxing and waiting for the refill or the kind of the restocking of blood in in preparation for the next cardiac cycle or the next ejection and then we always talk about mean arterial pressure that's kind of like our gold standard of monitor monitoring that's their basis of treatment generally Um, so what that means, so mean arterial pressure is broken down or has two contributing factors, your cardiac output and your systemic vascular resistance. Uh, and then cardiac output is broken down into heart rate and stroke volume. So just as a little definition here, so systemic vascular resistance refers to how much the resistance those arterials in your body are creating to forward flow. And so if in general, most of your arterials are very tightly squeezed, that would be considered having very high systemic vascular resistance. However, that generally does not correspond with good forward flow because you have a lot of resistance. Now, if your arterials are vasodilated and very open, then they are you're going to have low systemic vascular resistance coming from vasodilation. Now, when I think of vasoconstriction and how it works, if you think of like a boa constrictor as a snake, right? The boa constrictor wraps itself around, I don't know, your arm and then squeezes down and creates a lot of pressure on your arm. So you should be able to kind of correspond or correlate constriction with high blood pressure and dilation with low blood pressure. And again, that all kind of comes from those arterial sphincters that we were talking about earlier. And so mean blood pressure is kind of a combo effect of this cardiac output and how much resistance to forward flow. And so usually when we're talking about perfusion, what we actually care about is cardiac output. And cardiac output tells us how much blood flow is actually happening. Although to actually measure cardiac output, you need... Um, my point is that it doesn't actually happen in clinical practice. And so we are then substituting in our mean pressure to reflect cardiac output. But you have to understand that it does not ha- it's not a one-to-one correlation because mean pressure is always in the perspective of your systemic vascular resistance. 
So you can have a very high mean blood pressure with a high vascular resistance, but the high resistance to flow actually means that you have actually poor cardiac output. So you have to walk away with this, remembering that good blood pressure or high blood pressure does not mean high output. It can, but I have to say it usually doesn't. <laughs> Anywhere when you're in extremes of one way or the other, there's usually is a problem. Yeah, I think um, when you are monitoring and you do have good mean pressure, the body does everything that it can to maintain that pressure. And at some, if your patient is compromised and you're kind of surprised at how great your blood pressure is under anesthesia, at some point that's going to catch up. And I feel like I have had cases where I go in on a GDV or a hemoabdomen and I'm shocked, like, wow, my blood pressure is amazing right now. I'm just going to coast right through this. But then usually like 20, 30 minutes in, or as soon as the GDV is released, um, that's kind of the body is like, I can't take this anymore. And then it starts to show its true numbers and you kind of get a dip. So the body is trying to fight on for as long as possible. And now you're really seeing the issues at hand. Yeah, absolutely. And then Lori was talking about a little bit earlier about how cardiac output is then broken down into heart rate and stroke volume. And so if you think about, now I like math. Math just kind of comes easy to me as a, I don't know, because I'm a nerd. But if you think about the units that we're talking about with this equation, it kind of all makes sense. So cardiac output is the net product. And so that is essentially volume over time or volume per second. So, and that is going to be equal to your heart rate, which is a beat per second or a beat per minute and your stroke volume, which is how much, like a volume per beat or how much blood is ejected per beat. So you multiply your stroke volume times however many times that stroke volume is happening in one minute, you end up getting your cardiac output in total. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, we tend to think about heart rate as a very, actually very important component of cardiac output. It's kind of on the first tier of having a direct effect. But then when you think about your stroke volume, so how much blood is actually being pushed with each cardiac beat, you now have to think about that has three main determining factors. So I think by the bucket being turned over, essentially like you fill the bucket, you turn the bucket over and you have to fill it up again. So, However full that bucket is when you start, so that's the end of diastole after your filling time and just as you go to dump the bucket over, right? However full that bucket is, that is your preload. And so obviously in order to have a good stroke volume, you need to have a full bucket. So we want a nice full preload. Two is contractility. Contractility is the force at which the heart is pumping. In order to have good forward flow, your, the muscles of your heart have to be functioning and actually tipping the bucket over with, you know, some tenacity. And then lastly is this word we're talking about all the time is your resistance or your afterload. And so the afterload is that resistance to forward flow in the aorta. That's, that's kind of pushing back against the heart, ejecting the blood. And so a lot of people use afterload and systemic vascular resistance kind of interchangeably and in some sense that does work. 
Although generally speaking, afterload is a very local effect at the aorta that's directly opposing the left ventricle from pushing blood out, whereas systemic vascular resistance, oh my God, systemic vascular resistance refers to kind of the whole global effect, including your muscles, your kidneys, your GI, everything else in that. Um, so it come, works out that those three, those three factors. So that's preload, contractility, and afterload. So pre, after contractility, all kind of work out to the stroke volume component. And then however many times you flip that bucket over, that's your heart rate. And together that works out to be your cardiac output per minute. With that little review, let's talk about all of the things that kind of set us up for hypotension in the OR under anesthesia. Um, I have this little example that when we're giving an anesthetic drug, there's a lot of factors that are affecting blood pressure, but the drugs themselves generally reduce contractility. So for example, your inhalant will decrease your stroke volume and then directly decreases your cardiac output. So you could see a decrease in your heart rate, which then results in a lower mean arterial pressure. And I feel like the drugs that we are giving oftentimes sets us up for a hypotensive state if generally just in the beginning sometimes but uh, oftentimes that can be a lasting effect Um, so there are certain things that we can do to try and minimize that some of the drugs off the top of my head here that generally decrease systemic vascular resistant resistance is acepromazine Um, You have your major induction drug, propofol, and then your inhalants. So we use isoflurane. Um, It's the same for SIVO and desflurane. Shout out to anyone who's using desflurane. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Other factors that can lead to hypotension would be hemorrhage, if you have any kind of polytrauma. Um, inadequate volume replacement for dehydration. So say you have a sick foreign body dog or cat that just hasn't been properly rehydrated first. Um, Cases of shock, so GDVs, your splenectomy, and sepsis or cardiogenic shock. Um, We also have other GI disease such as like even if it's a, a a foreign body with a full stomach of fluid or gas or foreign material. It's putting pressure on the vena cava, vena cava um, that can cause a decrease in your blood pressure. Um, anaphylaxis, histamine release, and hypercapnia. The anaphylaxis and the histamine release, that's going to cause a vasodilation and cause a decrease in your SVR. And so even though your cardiac output might be okay, because your resistance is so low and you have no, what we call vasomotor tone. So you don't have that. It takes away that vasoconstriction, takes away that resistance. So your blood pressure kind of tanks because again, your mean pressure is a reflection of your cardiac output in the perspective of your vascular resistance or vasomotor tone. So that's, yeah, absolutely. All of those things can be really important. I think a lot of times the hypotension that we're seeing in our generally normal patients, I'm thinking of like a simple lumpectomy, right? Or a simple spay usually aren't being, are not septic or in, you know, and they're not having severe hemorrhage, hopefully. And 
I would say the drug factor is usually the biggest factor leading to our hypotension. And I would say most of it is usually iatrogenic in that sense. So remembering that if you're seeing hypotension just after you've induced, it's because you've just given a slug of propofol or alfaxalone, and that is kind of a temporary vasodilation from that anesthetic agent. And then it should resolve pretty quickly. Although as it's resolving, you now have increasing inhalants coming on board and that will also contribute to hypotension with your vasodilation and decreased contractility. So keeping in mind that if your patient is otherwise normal, you can still have hypotension, but it's usually because of the drugs that you've chosen. I think um, everything that you've said though has been, is spot on in that sense. Um, the other kind of things that are kind of interesting, some of you may have heard of a term called relative hypovolemia that happens with vasodilation. And relative hypovolemia is a little bit of a misnomer because it have, has actually nothing to do with having a low blood volume, which is what the word actually suggests. What it really is, is that because of vasodilation, and an increase in what we call venous pooling. So the vena cava are our big floppy storage part of the cardiovascular system. And when they get dilated, they increase their capacity to kind of store blood. So instead of pushing the blood forward to return to the heart, they kind of just let everything kind of sit lazily and pool in those big veins. And so it the heart almost looks like you're having a hypovolemic kind of event, but you've actually had the total amount of blood in the vascular system itself has not changed. It's just not really moving forward because it's kind of sitting in that storage vessel. So you'll see that a lot of things, a lot of these drugs actually will contribute to a quote relative hypovolemia. And you'll see that some people will then try to give flu bolus and flu bolus and flu bolus, but trust me, the, the venous capacitance and the ability to kind of allow blood to pool is really impressive and will kind of persist even if you give fluid bolses and you don't see a change. But some of the things that can kind of contribute to that are the vasodilation we're talking about um, and even uh, increased uh, or intermittent positive pressure ventilation. So if you're bagging the patient frequently or with high pressures, you can kind of also uh, decrease that return of blood to the heart, which is can be an important factor. I think that some people might not realize that is a contributing factor with intermittent positive pressure ventilation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see a lot of people who were just taught to every couple of minutes give your patient a breath, uh, regardless of how they're actually breathing. Like if they're breathing poorly, then it's something that has to be done. But I remember that was something in tech school that I was actually taught as well. Just uh-huh. every few minutes giving a nice good breath um and i quickly have learned throughout my years that it can actually be one of the contributing factors to having hypotension so if but if you have a patient who's normotensive whose mean blood pressure is it's like 80 i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because i think the deformation of like kind of lung collapse and atelectasis is totally a thing you want to make sure that you don't have some underlying hypoventilation that you're just not seeing. But if your patient's blood pressure is 45 because it's they're a hemoabdomen splenic 
tumor. Um, that if, especially if you do so frequently, you can actually really be contributing to kind of your, your low blood pressure situation and almost kind of worsening it. Or if your patient is just on a ventilator, the ventilator itself is probably contributing to your list of problems. Um, especially if the patient is willing to breathe and able to breathe spontaneously. If you have an open chest, it might not be an option, but again, on your normal spay, hopefully that shouldn't even be a factor. Especially also in um, cardiac cases where I learned with you doing that interesting case that we had where the cat was in heart failure oh, yeah. and needed a subplacement. And I was dealing with blood pressure issues and also um, having to ventilate for the cat. And I could see in real time on my monitor, um, because we had a central venous catheter, that when I was ventilating for my patient, I was actually causing, I could see in real time that I was causing some of my hypotension, Yeah, um, which was really eye-opening and for me. Yeah. I think that actually is a great tie into this concept called pulse pressure variation. And so if you have either a, a pulse ox waveform or an arterial blood um, or arterial blood pressure waveform from your art line, you can use either waveform so that as you give a positive pressure breath and try to standardize it, so you're always only doing 10 centimeters of water or 12 centimeters of water, there's really no published standards out there, so you just make your own standard, uh, but usually around 10 or 12. Hold that for about a second, and you're gonna watch your waveform. And if you see that the waveform compresses when you give a positive pressure breath, that is called having pulse pressure variation. And that generally signifies that you either have a relative hypovolemia where you just have decreased venous return to the heart, or you have true hypovolemia where you actually need a fluid bolus because you are behind on volume. So that's a really, I know it's very trendy, it's so hot right now, about talking about pulse pressure variation as to determining which patients would respond to a fluid bolus and which won't. So now that we've discussed kind of what it means to be hypotensive and how you get there, let's talk about how we monitor for blood pressure. I would say the most popular and um, easiest way to monitor blood pressure uh, via non-invasive technique would be using the Doppler. Yeah, I think it's, I think even the, what is it, the AVTAA, their recommended guidelines is that the, you should use a Doppler above probably anything else has anybody ever asked you like if you were on a some weird stranded deserted island and you could only take one monitoring piece of equipment with you that wasn't like an all-in-one monitor and you oh, like had to do <laughs> uh, well obviously but you had to do anesthesia on some strange creature that you found on this island what would you pick Paul socks oh or captograph oh i don't know that's a hard choice really as your only you wouldn't Pulse pick ox? a Doppler, maybe? You oh. could monitor blood pressure. You could have an audible heart rate. Yeah. And then sometimes I feel like... Do you... I get a stethoscope? Hmm. No, I don't think so. So I like the, I like the Pulse Ox because it shows me... This is such a diversion. <laughs> um, it shows me the uh, ventilation parameters and a heart rate and perfusion because your pulse ox won't work if you have poor perfusion 
which we're all talking about blood pressure, but in the end, again, it's not perfusion, right? Yeah, I might pick the Doppler. Which is, you're, you're allowed to, I won't <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so the, with that said, the Doppler detects arterial flow, makes an audible sound when the flow changes during each heartbeat. So when you're measuring with a Doppler, the principle of the of how it of the mechanics uh, so the it occludes the arterial blood flow by inflating a cuff then deflating it until the flow goes back to normal so that's when you would hear your systolic pressure when the pressure of the cuff is just below the systolic blood pressure blood flow can then pass by the cuff and is detected by the doppler crystal and then in turn that creates your sound yes you hear yep the and so it seems like you can use the doppler on patients of almost any size which i think is one uh very positive note about it um uh, the hard thing is that for me personally is that we don't really know what that number is telling us or how reliable that number is we know that that number falls somewhere between your mean pressure and your systolic pressure. We almost, again, the way that we chart it is by writing down, like writing it down almost like a systolic. And we end up treating it like a systolic <clears throat> because the systolic pressure, if we assume that whatever Doppler number we get is a systolic, then we will be more sensitive to treating it. If you get a number of 80, let's say, if you treat that as a systolic, that's low. So you're going to go ahead and treat it. If you treat it as the mean, you feel like you're doing great. And so a mean pressure of 80, that's awesome, right? So you would do nothing. So, and that's what I mean. It increases your sensitivity to hypotension, where if you just treat the Doppler like it's always systolic, you're, you will just intervene faster. Worst case scenario, you're taking decent pressure and making it a little bit better pressure, but you're probably not doing much harm. And one struggle with that for me is that some studies have shown that in cats, the Doppler is actually closer to mean, which we talked about a little bit in our last podcast about cats. But I tend to have a little bit of a greater tolerance window just because I feel like there's enough literature to support in cats specifically, it's closer to the mean. But in dogs, even small dogs, less than five kilos, even in small dogs, the Doppler is still closer to the systolic and you should treat it therefore like that. I think where the Doppler can be a little bit of a random number generator, as we Ugh. tend to call it sometimes, if you, so say you're doing your measurements and you're taking your, get your readings, uh, and you're going to commit to having that as a systolic pressure. I think that you have to maintain that throughout the procedure and it doesn't benefit anybody by switching in the middle or saying well now i'm wondering if this is actually the correct number um is it more mean now i think that causes a lot of confusion you start to worry that you maybe shouldn't trust the number that but that is what the that's the number that you are giving in that moment mm -hmm. and say that's your only measurement of blood pressure available um so i think that you have to commit in the beginning to what you're going to treat yeah. and how you're going to um kind of 
what you're going to do with those numbers. Right. I would agree. And I mean, we try to make sure that we, you correlate it to the clinical picture. Do you have a hemo abdomen where the heart rate is 170 because you are almost bleeding out completely and you get a Doppler number of 175? Right. That's not, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And so you still have to go through and sometimes double like a troubleshoot and make sure that the cuff is not around the joint or something where it's, it's still working function properly and your cuff is the appropriate size for the patient. However, I mean, I think I agree that you just have to kind of accept if you're going to use a Doppler, you just have to kind of accept what it's giving to you and whichever and accept the blast to your ears every time they cauterize the patient. Yeah. And, um, (laughs) in, yes, that's true. In, in extreme cases of hypotension, I don't think that the Doppler can necessarily be very reliable. Um, especially if your patient is cold for one, um, you can get an undetectable systolic pressure. And then what do you do if that's your only means of monitoring? Or if, yeah, sometimes if you have a a wee little thing and it's hypotensive and then you cover it up in drapes and then your Doppler signal kind of cuts out or it falls off or something, or the the gel dries up and then you have to futz with it for 10, 15 minutes to try and get a pressure back. I think that's one of the things that really stresses me out about the Doppler. I would agree. I would agree. Um, and then there is a lot of mechanical error or like human error that plays into yep. having the Doppler. Um, and then cuff selection is really important. So you can place the cuff um, anywhere that you can palpate an artery, really. So the front legs, um, the tail are yep. probably like the most uh, the popular, back the back legs. Yeah. Um, and then you'll just want to make sure that the cuff is covering 40% of the circumference of the limb. So just to clarify, so the cuff wraps around, right? And it's has a, like a long side and a short side, right? So you want to take the short side, which would be the width of your cuff and then wrap the short side around your patient's leg. It should only make it around 40% of the circumference of the leg. If you are between two sizes, if your patient is a three and a half, you want to pick the size up. You want to go to a four because using a cuff that's too small will make your numbers artificially high. Therefore, your patient could be hypotensive, but because you have a tiny cuff, you won't ever see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, increase your sensitivity, help to protect those kidneys and that brain, and just go to the half, si- half size above. So that way you're just more likely to intervene. And then on the flip side of that, a cuff that's too large will artificially decrease your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen some cuffs that are so loose on the leg that after you take the reading, it kind of slides down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> or you just have a bulldog leg and it's, exactly. it's just, a, it's triangular shaped. So, um, that can be a challenge with, yeah. Doppler readings and oscillometric, which yeah, would be a good segue into our next Next topic, yeah. So oscillometric cuffs come, you probably have seen Cardell's. I think you can get a non-invasive cuff that is is separate from a multi-parameter monitor, or you can have one kind of built into, let's say your surgery vet, your Daytex monitor, whichever you're using. The accuracy of an oscillometric automated blood pressure reading is very much dependent on the, uh, the algorithm or the technology that that company uses. Some seem to be more accurate than others. Most of them are actually written for human patients. Um, 
And so there's always a little bit of variability when you take, you know, what should work on a 70 kilo human and put it on a 10 kilo dog. Um, I think it, in general, it seems to work. Um, although sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So the oscillometric is going to inflate around the arm or leg, I guess, or tail. And it creates a, a solid air column from the machine all the way through the cuff. Then as the machine slowly, and so it's going to inflate to occlude the blood flow, just like your Doppler cuff. Then as it slowly deflates the cuff, it's actually going to detect the pulses. If you've ever gotten your own blood pressure taken and you can kind of feel the throbbing in your arm as they go, I kind of imagine that it's essentially what the oscillometric is detecting, where that, that pulsing that pulsing blood, as it starts to be able to escape through the cuff, the very beginning of the pulses that the cuff picks up is going to be your systolic. And then as you get down to closer to your mean, you're going to have maximal pulses. And so that max, I would say amplitude of those little pulses that it detects will is then calculated as your mean. And then whenever the pulses in the cuff go away completely, that's when you have uh, no occlusion to blood flow. And then that's when they determine diastolic. So oscillometric cuffs are kind of cool because they give you three numbers, a systolic, a mean, and a diastolic. They might not all be 100% correct, but at least you have three numbers that you can work with, which I think is, to me, a, a big benefit of using those. I sometimes will use the Doppler. I kind of got away from doing this recently, but the Doppler and the oscillometric, just because I like to see where the Doppler reading is in relation to what the oscillometric is telling me, kind of as my own research to see where, uh, what's closer. Is it closer to the mean or is it closer to the systolic pressure? Yep. And so what we mean is you put the Doppler, the Doppler crystal on, let's say the front paw, and then instead of your own sphingo and blood pressure cuff, you just use your oscillometric cuff. So then you're watching the screen. Well, you hear it start to take a measurement because you hear the Doppler sound go away. Mm -hmm. And then you're watching the screen. And as you see the, the cuff, uh, pressure, uh, reading at the current moment as it's slowly deflating. And as soon as you hear the Doppler number come back, it kind of gives you the machine's Doppler reading. And mm-hmm. then at the end of its reading cycle, it then gives you out the three numbers. And so then I think there's actually pretty good correlation. I do too. Um, it's like, Oh, it's almost impressive. And so it's actually has built my, my faith in oscillometrics as of late. Um, although I still go for the art line. <laughs> Always. Well, if the art line is not immediately available, I would right. definitely choose an oscillometric over a blood pressure or a Doppler blood pressure. Really? Yeah, wow, I, feel I like, think so. Yeah, I it's I feel like when I started at this hospital, everyone only used Dopplers, and it's slowly. I don't know. I feel like there's been a conversion. I think because everyone has been comparing art lines, Dopplers, mm-hmm. and oscillometrics, and we're all like, oh, they actually kind of all work. Yeah. Especially, I would say more so for my larger breed dogs, yep. I would go right for the oscillometric. Yep. If it's a cat or a small dog, I'm probably just going to use the Doppler. Yeah. Because the oscillometric, you have to detect those pulses, right? It doesn't respond, rely on those sounds. And if your patient is so small, it doesn't make big pulses, then the, the oscillometric might not be sensitive enough to pick up on it. But sometimes it actually s- still works, which is impressive. I'm still not a big believer. So my general rule is if they're less than 10 kilograms, I tend to use a Doppler. 
greater than 10 kilograms, I, I'm more comfortable just using an oscillometric. And if you are a paranoid type person and you want to use both, I go for it. It's just more wires for you to maintain, which is fine. It's just on you. But um, yeah, I think, I think in the end, whatever gives you the, whatever you can be consistent with is going to work out best. And also understand that both of these devices work great in normal tension. If your patient is in a normal state, it's going to be fine. If your patient is at the extremes, both devices will start to fail. So if your blood pressure is 35 and you're 89 degrees because you are a little white fluff that had its kidney ripped out, like we had one the other day, and you are just so tiny, it was, I mean, you have wounds everywhere, you're hypo, you're, you've almost bled out, you're super cold, you're almost in septic shock, yet neither the Doppler or the oscillometric cuff are gonna be reliable, if you even get a reading. Mm. Um, and then for those, we tend to go for our art lines. And I've heard you say a couple times over the past few months or weeks and um, when you're doing your trainings and you'll say, you know, you can adjust your equipment maybe once or twice if you're not getting a reading that you're happy with. Yep. But like after that, you have to at some point believe your monitoring equipment yeah. and assess your patient in a, in a different way. Yeah, I would agree. Unless it really doesn't fit the clinical picture, but yeah, you can only move, I say with the only, pulse ox. Especially with the pulse ox, you can only move things around so many times. Right, because or else your patient has just been hypoxic for 10 minutes and right. you've just refused to accept it. And <laughs> now your patient's in even worse state. Um, and so I guess our last thing that we'll talk about mm. for this episode or this kind of segment is we'll talk about the art line and how it is, it is the gold standard. And it does give you a systolic, a diastolic, and a mean pressure. They are accurate, all three of them. And in real time. Yes, and you get a waveform. I really just love them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think about whenever I actually really care about having an accurate blood pressure, this is the time to place an art line, just because I want, if it's so detrimental to my patient to have hypotension um, or I'm managing, they have a history of hypertension and their last recorded Doppler was 300, those are patients that I probably just want an art line so I see what, they, what the real value is and it lets me treat it, I think, appropriately and with confidence because I have an actual reading. But placing the arterial line takes practice mm -hmm. especially on really tiny things and i think it's a little bit of a badge of honor yes it's it, it does require some skill yeah right and then especially if you get it on the first try you kind of little do a little dance inside your body maybe but make outside sure you, yes <laughs> but make sure you tape it in before you get too yes. excited <laughs> and then be very gentle moving the patient around That's once right. you've gotten your catheter in. I usually tell everyone that I get the I get to name their next dog if they rip up my art line. Well, <laughs> on on Lauren's first day at our hospital, she struggled. Everybody was struggling with getting an art line in this very sick cat. Yeah. And um, Lauren finally got it in the tail. It was like such a relief that we had that in. Yep. 
Um, and myself and another technician went to go move the cat into the OR, and whoop, there goes the art line. My first interaction with Lauren ever was, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. But I'm still talking to you. Yeah, we're still, we're still friends, so we've gotten over it, but yeah, the feeling, you, I think you can, um, know what that feeling must have been. Yes, yes. Uh, oh man. But, um, when you're placing a an art line there should be some case selection right so we're not going to do it in our two-year-old fracture that's otherwise happy healthy normal attention because they're not without risk especially in cats if you leave because cats are so prone to clotting i think in general if you leave an arterial line in for too long and they form a clot you can actually end up damaging the foot or the leg so that's why i think in like critical care type settings they don't tend to do art lines for longer than like 12 hours, six hours. Yeah, or at possible. our practice, just the length of the surgery. Yeah. And that's, that's as much as you want. Yeah. Um, dogs okay. are a little more tolerant, but also if let's say they're coagulopathic and, uh, you worry that like, what if you hit the art line, but you can't get it to feed and now the whole leg is blowing up in a one giant hematoma and they right. can't clot. That might be another time when you might want to second guess yourself. Or in a other horrible type scenario, you're all draped in. You can't really see your catheter. What if that does slip out at some point? Yep. Then you have hemorrhage. So that actually happened to me once. Uh, I forget. Oh, we were doing a PDA on a tiny puppy. Because they're always. They're always mm. tiny. <laughs> and it was an open PDA. And so we, it was a chest, like an open chest surgery. And I believe we ended up getting the art line in the ear, which is something I hate doing, but I think we were so desperate mm. for that we just had to. And I think at one point, the seal on the T-set connecting to the catheter actually loosened, and I put my hand under the drape for a moment, and it came out with blood on it, and I was like, oh, no. And then I had to investigate. That still is a case I definitely wanted. An art line. An art for line. For sure. Absolutely. But just... But it examples happens. of things that do go yeah. wrong. It's just like you said, there's always risks. There's an- Absolutely. So just be a little careful about your case selection, like Lori mm-hmm. said. Um, but yeah. The other nice thing about it, which I forgot to mention, is that it gives you a point for blood draws. Yes. Especially under the drapes where you don't have to hold off. And there's pressure there as long as you're doing okay. So you can get arterial blood samples for blood gas analysis. Serial uh, BGs. Yep. Like I think about... Like the diabetic that's getting uh, cataract surgery mm-hmm. and they're paralyzed and you're trying to monitor their blood glucoses anyways. Um, having an art line just makes it all just a little bit easier. So you're not moving the patient a lot as the ophthalmologist is using their microscope. Mm-hmm. But So there's some more, a little bit, you know, convenience factor that comes with that. So this has been a lot. It's been a lot of review. I think we've covered a lot of important topics. We've kind of gone over some basics of cardiovascular physiology. We've talked about systemic vascular resistance, cardiac output, mean blood pressure. You'll see that we talk about mean blood pressure all the time because it really is the most important factor in terms of uh, perfusion to your organs. And we've talked about the different ways that we measure blood pressure. And just as a final recap, we consider hypotension anything or a mean blood pressure less than 60. Ideally, we keep it to 65 or 70-ish, but 60 is your hard cutoff. Or a systolic, I would say less than 90. Hard cutoff. I would say maybe maybe 100. 
And this depends if you have those three numbers or if you're working with your Doppler and you only have like a systolic single number to work with. Um, but I think this is a great beginning to our discussion of hypotension. Next up, we are going to talk about uh, our five steps of kind of intervening when we have that hypotensive patient. Um, and so we will get to that uh, just next week. So thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, I guess we'll see you later.